G'day and welcome to Grad Chat, your opportunity to find out about graduate research here at Queen's. My name is CJ the DJ and I'm your host for this week's Grad Chat. Of course, a show like this could not happen without the support of the School of Graduate Studies and CFRC. So thank you very much to both of those groups. Now, if your mates miss the shows at any time, you can download the podcast the next day on either SoundCloud or iTunes, as well now as CFRC. They have their own podcasting system as well. So no excuse not to hear what our awesome students and postdoctoral fellows are doing. Now, today I'd like to introduce you to James Anderson, who is doing a Master of Arts in Political Studies under the supervision of Dr. David Hagland. Welcome to Grad Chat, James. Glad to be here. James has a very interesting background, and the first part I'd like to let everyone know that he is currently on active duty in the US Air Force. That's it. And therefore, some of his comments are purely his own. He does have to be a bit careful because he is still in the forces. And as we know, when we had our law student on way, way back, they have to be careful what they say. So that's a little caveat there. But what I'd like to ask you, James, can you give me a bit of a background of a couple of things? One, your Air Force credentials, as well as then going into what you're doing now and what you've done at various universities, because it's not just being in the active duty. There's other things that you've been doing as well. Right. First of all, again, Thank you for having me on. Getting to know Canada has been very interesting. (laughs) Being from South, and we were talking about the cold weather out there. Yes, James is from South Carolina, (laughs) so it's a little different, although we don't have those hurricanes. Great state of South Carolina. (laughs) (laughs) So so a little bit about me. I've been in the Air Force for about 10 years now. Mm -hmm. I started off enlisted graduated from high school, decided that I wanted to go in and I wanted to be a military member and deploy for my country and serve. I did that for about four years. I was what we would call a maintenance analyst. I was just a statistician, just a trend analysis person. <laughs> hey, we all need those. Though. I know, I know, I know. But it was fun. It was fun. I learned a lot uh, doing that. And it, it, it actually garnered a trade, which was, you know, the, the analysis side right. of stats, of policy, of, yeah, just logistics. I decided that I wanted to take that further. I separated from active duty, got out of the enlisted side, and then I went to school at the University of South Carolina. Right. And majored in political science. Graduated from there, loved every bit of my time as a Gamecock, and you will hear me talk about it quite frequently. (laughs) (laughs) And I picked up a a trade, another trade, right? Right, Which was international relations and foreign policy. I really started to get uh, interested in that with with an amazing professor who has since taken, done everything for me to to help me out and really start to learn what U.S. foreign policy is, what the tools are to foreign policy. So you you stopped being in the forces to do this? I switched to the reserves. Oh, okay. I was active duty, then I was a reservist. Right. And then I went back into the Air Force as an intelligence officer. Uh Aha. After your studies. There it is. Right. I I did the sort of a roundabout way of of becoming an officer in in the military. Usually people go through formal traditional programs that they have designed for. So when you were doing this research at South Carolina or your your bachelor's at South Carolina, the defense forces weren't actually paying for you to do that? My my GI Bill was. So ah. we have that, that nice little GI Bill that we okay. that we receive after we serve enlisted or or as an officer. Right. We're able to use that and go to school. So that right. paid for all my schooling That's, thankfully. That was good. Yeah. And I was able to finish my degree and then and then return to the active duty side. Now is with a different trade now, dealing with intelligence operations, intelligence analysis. But all your uh, statistics and everything <laughs> came into being too. So both your research and what you did pre- previously always all sort of helped out, didn't it? It did. It did. When you learn what they what they call a tradecraft in, in Intel, right. it 
involves objectivity. It involves getting rid of biases. It involves getting to the facts. Many of those things you'll see in trend analysis and, and statistics right. world as well. So the quantitative part was great, but also just learning how critical thinking works right. helped me out as a trend analysis person as well as uh, as an intelligence officer. And that's what I do now. But you're not quite doing that now <laughs> because now you come to do your master's here at Queen's. So a couple of things there. I understand you're currently on a Fulbright scholarship. And for people who don't know, Fulbright scholarships are very, very good to get. And Americans can get them to come here or to other countries I think and Canadians can get them to go into to study in the US so we've had some of our Queen students who've had Fulbrights and have gone down to the US to do their research so can you tell me a bit about your scholarship because did you get the Fulbright Public Policy Fellowship was that the one because there's a few different ones that right. they have there, there are a number ones the way that the Fulbright program works of course named after J. William Fulbright which is he was a transformative senator mm-hmm. in the US he was chair of the Senate Foreign Relations Committee I think for about 15 years. The longest, which is Senate Foreign Relations Committee, is one of the most prestigious titles you can have in the U.S. Senate. He had this program called the Fulbright Program that he started in the 19, I think it was late 40s, since its goal is to provide educational grants. Right. And it's to provide some sort of a cultural exchange where you could go, as an American, I could go to Germany yes, and learn about German politics on the domestic side or German foreign policy. The goal is for what I'm doing is called the Fulbright Research Fellowship. Okay, right. So that's one of them. That's under the Fulbright student yes. umbrella. Yes, because they have some for the faculty as well, for people yes. who are not, not aware. Yes, and and so they the Fulbright Research, it's, it's research-driven. However, you, can, you could go and get a master's degree. So what I'm doing is sort of a dual uh, track here because I, I also I left it out, but I got my master's at American University as well in DC. Oh yes, that's right. I forgot that part. Sorry, <laughs> and so, we didn't quite get to that. Point, did we didn't we? get to it, <laughs> but but I I just wanted to be really ambitious and, yes. and work on another master's. So that's working on the master's of political studies now, and also doing research at the Center for International Defense Policy, which I won't start doing that until January. Okay, because right. I'm I'm still trying to get adjusted to school. <laughs> as you could. Can we ever get adjusted to I school? Know. I don't know about that. <laughs> <laughs> Still working at it. And so that's one, Fulbright Research under the Fulbright Student Umbrella. Then there's a, um English teaching assistantship that you could do. It's called an ETA. Right. Where you may go to Turkey and you may teach students there how okay. to speak English. Great. Um, that's one. The other one is what you're talking about, which is the, I think it's called the Hayes-Clinton Fellowship, the public policy one. Okay. I think that one goes into more developing nations where you okay, go to. Okay, because I was wondering whether yours was that because of your topic. Right. So right. I was I was probably too far ahead of myself there. I should have just come out and asked you, which one have you got? <laughs> <laughs> right, and there's so, there's there so many. There are so many. And then the Fulbright Scholarship, which is mainly for PhDs who are going right. to a different uh, So, college. So what made you, because you can go to all sorts of different countries mm-hmm. to do to, with this um, fellowship that you've got, what made you choose Canada, apart from leading into your your topic? <laughs> <laughs> you know, you know, every almost every bar that I've been to here, everybody always asks, you know, why are you, why did you come to Canada? <laughs> it's a and great I'm, place. That's yeah. why I came to Canada. So. It's amazing. I think it's beautiful. People are amazing. The thing that interested me most about Canada, being from the south, southeast, we don't know anything further than maybe Virginia. <laughs> Uh, I mean, we know New York, and nobody likes New York in in, in the South. No, no, it's, it's I love New York. Joke. It's a running joke in the South. You're just like, oh, oh yeah, I know what it's like. Yeah, it's probably like the Toronto Montreal thing, and the same with Sydney Melbourne back home. Yeah, and I've heard about both of these. Yes. Divides, by the way. <laughs> 
and it is it is so uh, to to get to learn a country that we border geographically but our cultural memories are very very different yes Right. I mean, British imperialism, which I mean, we, we could both see that in, yes. in both of the experiences. But Canada detached from British imperialism way f- further along in the process than, than the U.S. did. Right. So we have very different cultural memories. And mm-hmm. although and we still have head of state is, the, is still the queen. That is it. That is it. You know, <laughs> Whereas but, you guys would like like to be because it always always makes me laugh is when any of the members of the royal British royal family go across to the states. It's like, woo. <laughs> <laughs> it's like you guys want a, want a queen as well. That's true. That's true. Uh, my Canadian politics class, I learned the word prorogation for the first time. Oh, is right. That, that kind of terminology is not it's something that we <laughs> throw around in, the, in Congress or anything like that. So, uh, but yeah, so that's what led me. There is a difference between right. the way that we perceive. Not to you know, not to just speak on the legislative side. How our legislative assemblies and, and bodies are vastly different. I mean, mm-hmm. in a lot of ways. Very. Right. Party discipline. That's not a thing in, in, in Congress. I mean, yes, it's, it's sort of a thing, but not really. Oh, Party this, polarization this stuff yeah. under parliamentary privilege is always makes me laugh. It's a difference. Mm-hmm. It's a difference. So it wasn't then some of your not necessarily professors, some of um, maybe chiefs commanding, commanding and whatever is in the Air Force for you. Right. It's not them saying, can you go and study this? It wasn't. I decided on my own two feet because the, the Fulbright uh, program is sponsored by the State Department. Okay. Bureau of Cultural Education and Cultural Affairs okay. is what it is. So technically, I'm under Department of State as well as DOD right now. I mean, that, that would essentially be what I... Right. <laughs> I'm kind of dual-hatted. And, and that's what... Nobody directly led me to it. Right. But I remember I was in Kandahar, Afghanistan in 2011. And I remember getting there and getting adjusted. I, I, I was at one base and then we ended up flying to another base. And... First of all, I had no idea any other nations were there right, uh, right. in Kandahar. And then I had no idea that Canadians were right next door. So there was literally... <laughs> you guys got to get out and mix. I know. The whole, the whole compound <laughs> yes. right next door. Right. And that was my first experience with Tim Horton. So I call it Tim Horton diplomacy, <laughs> uh, where, <laughs> where I got to eat some Tim Hortons because there was a trailer right there at Kandahar. That'd be right. <laughs> that's fantastic. I love it. And so that's the first time I learned about Canada. And that's the first time I learned about how we operate in a coalition uh, right. capacity, right. how tied we are uh, as far as military interoperability. That's what led me to my project. Okay, so we better get on to your project <laughs> before uh, people go, what the heck is she talking about? Come on, Colette. So your research seeks to examine the Canada-US defence relations in the age of America first, which is quite um, poignant. So can you explain what do you mean by America first? Let's explain that. What's your interpretation of America first? Right, so... I think when we when we look at the transition from the Barack Obama administration to President Trump, right, it's they're markedly different views about how we conduct foreign policy in an outward facing way. Okay, and the the Obama administration leaned more on multilateralism, working with other countries in a way to conduct a military operation. In the case of 2011 in Libya, right, right. there was a NATO operation. Everybody galvanized behind a goal. And then you went and did it. Right. And it was it was a coalition capacity in 2011 uh, in Libya. And when we look at this transition from more multilateralism to bilateralism, mm-hmm. where the Trump administration is is looking at working in a transactional way okay. with with other countries and, and solely on a one on one basis versus 
you know, a coalition. Coalition, right. And so that that's a difference. The other difference is during the, the Obama administration, even before that, during the first Bush administration, not the second Bush, and, and after the fall of the Soviet Union and the Cold War, there was a lot of talk of the indispensable nation. It's sort of the grand strategy of the U.S. is the indispensable nation where if we need to put out a fire militarily, we will do that. If we need to support Eastern European nations with, you know, enlarging them democratically and exposing them to free markets, then the U.S. will be at the forefront of doing that. Right, right. When we look at that, and let's just say 1990 all the way until now in 2018, it's a very different approach to foreign policy where instead of saying we're going to work together and do a free trade agreement and expose other countries to free market and all work together on a continental basis to have a free trade agreement, we're going to work on a bilateral basis. Right, right. Work with Mexico, then work with Canada, and then now you have the USMCA agreement. So that's that's a difference. The third thing would be, I think, asymmetric warfare. So it's a lot of, we have the rise of ISIS is, is a very right yes. interesting thing, right? right? So when I look at, it brings me back to the indispensable nation as well. How do we work together before, you know, we, we would work together militarily, we would say, let's, let's go after ISIS, let's, let's take ISIS out, or let's go after Al Qaeda, right? right. Uh, yes. The yeah. global war on terror. Mm-hmm. Now you get to a point where it's, well, let's in Afghanistan, let's, uh, you know, we're more on a not a unilateral footing on the US solely, but we are putting all of our forces and in, in trying to work on that problem set singular singularly, right. versus in a, in a very in a large capacity. The fourth point that I do want to make is that during the Reagan administration, as well as uh, during the second Bush administration, there was a general. It, those administrations were generally unpopular uh, from Canadians, and I know you probably. <laughs> I, I wasn't around here at that time. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Generally unpopular, and, and during the Reagan administration, uh, you had SDI, Strategic Defense Initiative, where uh, the Star Wars, as, as it was popularly right, called, right. the Reagan administration, some in the Canadian sort of foreign policy and, and that apparatus, believed that there was sort of a weapon weaponization of space. Right. And Canadians didn't like that. In the Bush administration, there was the unilateral. Well, some perceive as unilateral, depending on your, you know, your viewpoint. The action in a, in the uh, in Iraq in 2003, right? Yes, very unpopular. Canada and, and I think it was the Christian government. I, I'm still getting used to these names, by the way, the <laughs> prime ministers, but didn't support it. And general, un, un, you know, unpopular uh, president in the Republican administration. President Obama was very popular, and now we are at the Trump uh, the Trump administration and President Trump. And so now it's it's interesting to see the perspective from Canadians in the foreign policy realm as well as just at the bars it's um, it must be great uh, research for you without actually doing the research just listening just listening to listen to people's perspectives and everyone's going to have a different perspective depending on what country they're from and their own beliefs but uh yeah it must be fascinating for yeah. you yeah so so because if you only did this in the states what you're researching it would be very different very different my interesting class right now is american foreign policy taught by Dr. Sikulski, mm-hmm. and uh, he's amazing, by the way. <laughs> he's really, really intelligent. And his perspective on American foreign policy, I don't want to throw any shots at any other professors that I've taken at any <laughs> other time, but he's by far the richest literature, most diverse, and just right. his perspective is, is amazing. It's, it's far better than any other class I've taken. So let's get more into your research. So thank you for okay. that. And that's actually what you gave was a nice time frame of the different administrations because everyone coming in is going to be different 
Right. And we'd like to think they can just continue on, but we know that's never going to happen. So it's, it was interesting to see that timeline that you've you very clearly demonstrated for us. So thank you for that. But going into your research, you're looking at the Canadian strategic culture to investigate possible shifts and changes that could occur in the continental relationship that we have currently, and particularly on topics like NORAD, counter-ISIS, Arctic security, space policy, and the defence industrial base. When you talk about strategic culture, can you define that for me? And and can you explain Canada and American strategic culture right now? Uh, So strategic culture is a longer term phenomena. It underpins. So when you think of things, let's think of strategy. So strategy mm-hmm. is how how a country will prioritize and enlist what we're going to take care of from a foreign policy standpoint. That's But it's normally over a few years, right? The strategy over, is, is not years. a strategy for one year, it's a strategy for five plus. That's true. That's true. But the but there's always this underpinning thing of culture that lends you to pick prioritize this over prioritizing this. Right, right. right. In the Canadian experience, you could think of, I'll give you some examples of how, of what strategic culture is. So influences that will lend a country to prioritize this over this would be geography. Okay. Right. So Mm -hmm. if you, there's a, what, 5,500 mile border uh, that separates US and Canada. Yes. And then you look at the, at how, how big Canada is and you look at some of the inhospitable territory, right? I mean, you can't just have, you know, people out, you know, people not living in some, in some of the areas. In the American experience, does that exist? Yeah, sort of in the Great Plains, but like, not really. Right. And so that's going to, I was, I was, they were talking about the, I was actually at a conference, you was talking about the Ranger Force. And uh, the importance of rangers and and, the, and I'm like man, right. I, don't, I don't talk about rangers ever in the in the U S just because that's the it's forest not be... rangers and things right, like that right. yeah there's lots of them I know and you need them it, you do but unless you're out west I mean you're not you going to talk in the U S you're true. not going to talk about the the rangers at all right <laughs> uh, so it, I thought that was that was a fascinating conversation but yeah so your your history uh, your, so that's one one is geography history is another big thing right so we talked about British imperialism and yeah. how politics is going to be at least from a domestic side, how you craft foreign policy is going to be a little different than, than the U.S., right? Yes, because yours is, well, first of all, yours is a presidential system and ours is more on the um, parliamentary. That's it. That's it. And, you know, there, there's a lot of conversation you have about presidential action and how, mm-hmm. you know, how, how you... The use of military force is something I looked at a lot when I was getting my graduate degree and how much authority the president has has sort of grabbed over the course of, of, of years. Right? right, right. Whereas in the Canadian experience, it may be a little different. So that's that's one. The other thing is cultural memory. And so what sticks out in a from a historical standpoint in the minds of policymakers when you craft policy? So the strategic culture from a cultural memory standpoint so, so, for example, it could be the case that in the 1990s, Canada uh, leaned more on, and, and this will get me, I don't want to get too far ahead. Uh, actually, I will. So we'll just talk about it. So strategic culture, these are things that are underpinning how policy is crafted. So then let's talk about grand strategy, yeah. which is really what I want to talk about. Okay. Grand strategy. Strategic culture is more theoretical. Your grand strategy gets into that that's prioritizing. And 
after so when the UN was UN was created, Canada petitioned largely to have their seat on the UN Security Council because they wanted to have influence and prestige and they wanted right. to be involved in the process. And they were involved in the League of Nations with Article Ten, which of course League of Nations didn't pan out like we wanted yeah. to after the First World War. But Canada was looking for a little bit of prestige and they wanted to distinguish themselves between what they call the lesser powers and secondary powers. Okay. Right. So you have these great powers, then you have secondary powers, and you have less, lesser right. powers. So they want to distinguish themselves in the Canadian experience. So they adopted what is called the functional principle. Functional principle, which is how basically carving out a lane in, okay. the, in the international system. So is it more in terms of defense and stuff? It's mm-hmm. more that we're normally the peacekeepers? There you go. So that's what that's what would lead me okay. into in later. Right. right. So that functional principle led you to well, the Canadian experience to what they call middle powersmanship and, and then later, you know, prioritizing peacekeeping, using rapid military forces. If you're going to deploy, we're going to deploy rapidly. Right. And then we're going to okay. leave. Like that, that's what the so Canadians in and out. Are about. In and out. And so, and then they did it in Desert Storm in uh, the 1990s, uh, at the early 89-90. And so, so what I'm looking at is, are there going to be any, if America first is leaning more towards Inward facing, we're mm-hmm. going to focus on domestic politics. Yeah. Where, you know, we're going to focus on bilateralism if we do inform policy. Then, and if Canada and the U.S. have been so aligned with each other, right? I mean, in in every way, I think there's a there's a quote about uh, it's from Pierre Trudeau, and I can't, I'm going to butcher it. It's it was it was 1970s. It was during the Nixon administration. Pierre Trudeau came to D.C. and he talked about how. You know, it's like sleeping with a bear, right? I mean, right, you, you know, right. every twitch and grunt or something like that. Basically, Canadians are going to feel every time the U.S. does something. Right. If we're doing this drastic shift to America first, of course, Canadians are going to feel it. Yeah. Right. Yeah. And that's going. And so what is that going to have culturally? What, what does the culture, the strategic culture of candidate of Canada dictate as to what the strategy is going to be going forward? Right. Okay, so right. That, that's sort of my connection which led me to my proposal, and it's now leading me. That's going to be more broad, uh, broader thing. But then you get into topical issues like NORAD and, and counter-ISIS, where you're looking literally at how will you modernize NORAD and how will counter-ISIS uh, mission continue. So how do the U.S. and Canada currently work together on defense and continental security? Yeah. Because they're been a bit at loggerheads lately yeah yeah <laughs> that's true that's true which is tricky for everyone <laughs> both north and south of the border right right the the biggest thing is in is is norad right north american aerospace defense right yes. and that is it's sort of this i don't want to say shield because uh, canadians really don't don't like that canadian policymakers don't like anything Ballistic missile defense shield, you don't really say that, but it's it's a continental shield of some sort where right. we are where the US and, and Canada are working together to in essence prevent another nine eleven kind of attack. Yeah, right. And that's right. what NORAD is is for. It's for early warning where we can detect a an aircraft that's gonna fly over the top of Canada, which the aircraft that would fly over the top of Canada would be a Russian long range bomber. Right. Which will be which will have certain capabilities like uh, you know, you know, any sort of they have hypersonic weapons. They have all these different missile capabilities, uh, cruise missiles from a you know, from a um, actual ship could be launched. 
So NORAD is supposed to provide that early warning to detect it early and then in some way, in my case in the Air Force, would be fighters, you know, fighter right, jets right, to react to it, right. to, to take it out. And so that was, NORAD was created in 1958 and then 2006, I believe, they re-looked at how they could modernize NATO to engulf a, a at least include a maritime position because it was usually mostly air, right. a little bit about ballistic missile defense so that, you know, if North Korea is ever trying to shoot a ballistic missile over yeah. And we'd have early warning capabilities to detect it. And then we could, you know, either the U.S. will do what we do uh, out there in the West Coast with some of our ground-based interceptors. Or, you know, we could react fighters or whatever to, to whatever threat. So that's that continental security. Are you talking more about trade? No, I'm not talking about trade because yeah. I know we don't want to talk about trade because <laughs> we're talking about defense here. Yes, but, yes. I mean, you've said yourself with President Trump at the moment. And one of the things I find interesting with anything to do with security, it depends on the administration who's in at the time, both in, say, Canada and in the US, because um, they both have differences. And even within their own country, there's differences. So my my thing is with this, with the Trump administration right now, and we've got the Trudeau administration, can we come to a happy, or are we still in a happy place when it comes to security of the continent? There, there was a uh, interesting article in the uh, Canadian Global Affairs, CGAI, uh, Canadian Global Affairs Institute, uh, which was, there was a defense attache outgoing. Uh, he was a Canadian defense attache working in DC. And he's a rear admiral, I can't remember his name, but he wrote this, it's about six or seven pages, or it actually was a speech and then sort of the transcript was kind of turned into an article. Right. And he talked about how the machine is moving, right? So right. from a security standpoint, when I looked at my thing, I said, no, this, the machine's probably not going to move. There's something that's going to happen. Mm -hmm. The cultural shifts are going to dictate that things are going to change about defense strategy in a bilateral way. Right. He says, no, this is, this okay. is uh, everything's okay. is going to be smooth sailing. So I think most of my research is going to actually test that out. And, well, that's and good because I think that, just, I mean, trade is one thing, yeah. but when it comes to safety and security, yeah. I think that's to me, and you're looking at culture, that's the big thing for everyone. Are we all going to still be safe? Can we still work well, well enough to make us all safe, not just north or south of the border, everyone on the continent safe? So I think if you can come up with some analysis with all that work that you've been doing and you're going to continue to do, if you can come up with analysis, that would be awesome, <laughs> just to put people's mind at ease. And because it is a big, it, it can be scary. And that, and that's a, it's a it's a fair point. You, you talked about trade, and I'll touch on it very, very slightly because it's not nor near my kind of thing that I've ever been focused on. But I was, I was talking with a professor, and he, and he talked about defense industrial base. Right. Right, so defense industrial base is sort of the defense apparatus, usually in the private sector, that is building all your weapons and right. building all and arming your your military. And he talked about the the importance of uh, from a defensive industrial base subcontractors. So you know how you if the US wants to build a product, then we would contract it out and we'd say, "Hey Boeing or North of Grumman, yeah. can you come can you and build it? this?" Well, th there are subcontractors, sub so Boeing may subcontract out so a Canadian contractor. Right. And and so that and there and that's a very popular thing to do. And, right. and usually you don't hear much about subcontractors because they're usually small firms. Yes. And they might build a widget here, a widget here. Mm -hmm. Well, renegotiating something like NAFTA may throw things like that in the flux. And right. we, we had a great conversation. So you do need to bring that a little bit into, yes. because it is to do with defense, even though it's a different, it's a byproduct exactly. of what defense is. 
Exactly. Fun. And there, there is a inherent sort of security element there. That's not not to mention that the Trump administration pulled pulled from a an act that pretty much said NAFTA need to be renegotiated renegotiated because of a security risk. Right. Right. I mean, right. So there, there are there are things that I'm going to pull in that that deal with trade, but very very little because. <laughs> well, no you're opening up a Pandora's box. Otherwise, <laughs> <laughs> I think if you're doing that, so, you'll never finish. You'll be doing your PhD, not just your masters. <laughs> James. Thank you very much for that. You get, you've given us a good oversight of the the challenges. I mean, because you can be doing this today, and if you any of the administrations change, it could be totally different tomorrow. So, <laughs> if you know true. what I mean, so it's one of those areas. I think you have to write, do your research really quickly, so you can get it published exactly before it changes. Because That's we it. all know things can change very, very quickly. That, that um, is that is really <laughs> true. It's it's very topical. Although the history of it would be still fascinating. Forever takes the next one, saying how things worked then and what can we do now. Yeah, and just imagine if if the next you know administration comes along is embraces global governance and international institutions right. and, so and so now change everything be, yeah it would be it would be so, something interesting it's an interesting times for us all and I'm, I'm glad you're actually working on this topic i think people would be intrigued with what you find <laughs> well thank you so, thank so you. thank you very much for coming i'm sorry we i'm gonna have to finish as usual i run out of time i keep thinking oh i'm never gonna mess up, be able to have enough questions but i don't need to because our students just keep like talk yes. like to talk yes we, we love to we love you like oh what are you researching yes i'll give it to you now. <laughs> you're good to go. <laughs> All right, so thank you again. Thank you. I really appreciate it. Thank you. So that's everyone. Another week of Grad Chat sadly comes to an end. But don't forget you can download the podcast on either iTunes, SoundCloud or CFRC. Until next week, this is CJ the DJ signing off with a big hooray. This show is produced in collaboration with CFRC at Queen's University, Kingston, Ontario, with infrastructure support from Queen's Faculty of Engineering and Applied Science. CFRC is located on traditional Anishinaabe and Haudenosaunee territory. Find more great podcasts at podcasts.cfrc.ca.